Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It's so nice to see you here. Um, clearly, a lot of people think you need to talk about Stalin um, for a variety of reasons. Some of them may be to do with exams, uh, maybe also uh, for uh, intellectual, educational, and topical reasons. Um, and I will try and root what I'm going to say in where we are now as where, as well as where we were then. There's two pictures up there about Stalin, the uh, uh, Soviet propaganda portrait of him as the uh, all-wise, all-seeing father of his people. And then um, side front and full views of him from his diary and police file um, when he was on the run before the revolution. We need to talk about him think as a historical figure first of all this is a man whose powers over the first half of the 20th century not only over Russia's history effectively over three, three decades his death in 1953 somebody who drove through the industrialization of his country um, at breakneck speed and at huge in a way that actually prepared the Soviet Union just about to survive the German onslaught uh, early in 1945. And of course, led his country through World War II, again at a huge human cost, partly actually, I think thankfully it was a very uh, uh, consequence of the Nazis, but also to do with his own prodigal attitude to human rights in a way that simply was not possible for a democratic leader like Roosevelt or Kiss. People were extended uh, indiscriminately at times. So that we're talking about a death toll of something like 27 million, seven-foot and two-wheel population. Or to put it in a more concrete way, um, around one million people in Leningrad died during the 900 or so days That is more people dying in Leningrad than the total British and American war dead for the whole war put together. So more Leningraders dead than any other city in the country. And that's something I will change in a moment. The negative side, the crimes of Stalin, are denounced by Khrushchev in the uh, 1980s. But the more, a more positive view of him has developed after the collapse of the country in the 1990s, a collapse that was cataclysmic and which again is something that we don't, I think, fully appreciate um, in the West when we think of Russia today. So he has, he is a historical figure that's also become, in many ways, a contemporary icon. There is a, a temporary picture of, of, uh, of him held up by two Russians who clearly lived through some of that Stalin era. Um, he's also seen increasingly in uh, parallel with Putin. Here is a satirical uh, cartoon, a picture of Putin 
looking at himself in the mirror and seeing uh, Stalin uh, looking back at him. Uh, the consistently now in uh, opinion polls, uh, some of them, you via some of them reasonable authorities, you get a sense that uh, uh, Stalin comes out as the most popular figure in election history, the most popular and esteemed leader, followed not surprisingly by Vladimir Putin, um, and then uh, figures such as Pushkin, the, uh, the author, as essential author. But these two figure together and to some extent uh, for the same reason. Putin's uh, approval ratings went up, I think, starkly after the annexation of the Crimea in 2014, and although they overflow, uh, not um, dramatically. Putin is not an enthusiast for the Soviet period. He's made it clear that he thinks that, in certain ways, the Bolshevik Revolution was a mistaken course. But he has also said that it, the collapse of the Soviet Union so completely and cataclysmically in uh, 1991 was a major uh, geopolitical disaster. And he has also made it clear again and again that in his view, Russia can only be governed and held together by strong leaders. Some of those strong leaders that he admires come from the Tsarist period but Stalin is a figure whom Putin admires as a strong leader who led the country through this great crisis. And that was, of course, the great patriotic war, as Russians call it, um, from 1941 to 1945, from uh, Hitler's surprise attack, surprise in quotation marks, attack on the Soviet Union, 22nd of June, 1941, to Victory Day, which in Russia is celebrated on the 9th of May rather than the 8th of May, as in, in this country. And unlike uh, Britain and America, Victory Day is fundamentally important still in Russia today as a, a national holiday. Uh, there are two pictures or images of that war, uh, an iconic representation of Stalin put up very deliberately in Unterden Linden in the center of Berlin uh, in 1945 to say to the Germans, you thought you'd won. Now look at the face of the victor. Uh, and then on the right, the uh, statue of uh, the motherland um, presiding over what was once the wasteland of Stalingrad eventually the site of uh, a major victory for the Soviet Union, for the Red Army, and also a turning point in Hitler's war. In a country that has had many vicissitudes over the last 25, 30 years, the Great Patriotic War is something that for many Russians they cling on to as an achievement that cannot be denied, cannot be um, uh, put on one side. It has, if you like, 
the role plays, if you like, the role of our finest hour in this country. Uh, if you think of the emphasis that again and again comes out on 1940, uh, I think in movies recently like Dunkirk and Darkest Hour, uh, constant uh, fixation with Churchill as a leader. Um, there are, of course, huge government differences, but two countries for whom the present is in fundamental ways rather disconcerting. Uh, clinging on to a finest hour becomes more and more important. And that's certainly true in Russia today. So that, I think, gives us a certain context for what, why Stalin is important as a historical leader, as a contemporary icon, as a figure of leadership that Russians will turn to. Now, some of that is, I think, probably quite familiar to you. So I want to talk about another aspect that I think is relevant to the, if you like, the international relations of the world we live in today, uh, the era of Trump and Putin, if you like. Um, if this were a literary festival, at this point I might press a button and mention a new book that happens to have come out um, between a Cambridge professor and a Russian colleague uh, based on new material from the Russian archives at Old Square, um, uh, which I think is discounted at by five pounds in petrol at the moment. But this is not a literary festival. So <laughs> however, more seriously, I want to talk about some things which came out of that project, which for me were particularly interesting and revealing as I thought about the Second World War and also about the kind of world we live in now and the kind of problems we have in understanding and dealing with contemporary Russia. So I would talk about, I want to talk about three lessons from uh, Stalin, if you like. First of all, his capacity to long for others with fake news. I'm deliberately using contemporary terms, but uh, I think you'll see in a moment uh, when I tell you a particular story that uh, why I'm using that. He's also a man who understands the power of silence, the power of silence which is actually more and more potent as we live in a world of 24-7 balance. And it actually matters in diplomacy, when to talk, when to not. And also, the insistence that he has on respect and on status, both to himself and to his country, himself as a representation of his country, which is something that is definitely uh, a characteristic of Vladimir Putin. 
So what I want to do is touch on three aspects which, you know, are not just negative but also equivocal or positive. Uh, and to give us a slightly more rounded sense of some of the things that we, I think, need to understand about contemporary Russia and which we can get at through the story of Stalin. So first of all, wrong-footing others is fake news. Caffeine Massacre, as I'm sure you know, was one of the most uh, dramatic controversies of the Second World War in terms of relations between the wartime allies. Uh, in June 1941, the Germans attacked on Russia, brought the Soviet Union into an alliance, first with Britain and then after Pearl Harbor with the United States. It was a complicated alliance, it was a frictional alliance, it also had very distinct achievements, and I'll come on to those at the end. But among the problems, the, one of the most intractable was the issue of Poland. What was going to happen to uh, Poland after the war? Uh, there was an exiled Polish government in London, forced into exile in 1939 because under the Hitler-Stalin pact, those two countries, United, uh, the Soviet, uh, Germany and the Soviet Union, Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union, had carved up Poland uh, between them. Uh, and Stalin had also given a, been given, of course, a, a, a green light to go in and take over the Baltic states, uh, uh, Lithuania, Latvia and Estonia, when he wanted to do so. So Poland was a cynical carve-up in 1939 that left a lasting problem when uh, Britain in particular and, and, and the Soviet Union were allies. It didn't become critical until 1943. Until in April 1943, uh, the Nazi uh, authorities announced that they had discovered mass graves in a forest uh, near Kalmyk. pictures or the pictures of, of what they found and that there were several thousand at this stage I think they thought 4,000 it's close to more like 13,000 bodies or that had been clearly identified from the remains of their clothing and their dog tags and things like that as Polish officers which the Germans said had been killed by uh, the Red Army uh, the Evidence was pretty compelling, and we know now that indeed this was a deed done at the explicit authorization of Stalin and the Politburo. That document in March uh, 1940, uh, document um, uh, from Beria, head of the secret police, to Comrade Stalin, uh, 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 suggesting that these... Uh, Poles were, who were in, in, in Russian prisoners' uh, war camps, were agitators, troublemakers, treacherous people, traitors, and so on, and needed to be done away. And Stalin is the first person in blue who signs uh, approval of the declaration. This came out in the Gorbachev era and uh, early Yeltsin era when there was a Polish Russian 
commissioned uh, into the Home Depot. So suspicions at the time, definite evidence unearthed later on. And on the face of it, a huge embarrassment to the Soviet Union. What is Stalin's response? Stalin's response is when he's put on the defensive, he comes out fighting with both fists. He denounces the German claims which have been supported by the Polish government in exile in London as essentially fake news. He uh, points to their, the support of the Poles for the German claims as evidence of collusion, you might say in our language. And he is, far from being apologetic, absolutely vitriolic in his denunciation. So this is what he writes, this is an extract from what he writes to Churchill, similar letter goes to Roosevelt on 21st of April. Uh, the Soviet government considers that the attitude taken of late by the Polish government vis-a-vis the USSR is completely abnormal and contradicts all the rules and usages of relations between two allied states. The slanderous campaign hostile to the Soviet Union started by the German fascists in connection with the murder of the Polish officers near Smolensk perpetrated by themselves on the territory occupied by German troops, so the blame is on the Germans, not on us, the Red Army, was immediately seized upon by the government of General Sikorsky, who is the um, leader of the Polish government in London, and is being avidly fanned by the Polish government press. Various other paragraphs in a similar vein, leading to a conclusion, all these circumstances compelled the Soviet government to state that the present Polish government which descended so low as to come to an understanding with Hitler government, put de facto end to the allied relations with the USSR and took up a position of hostility to the Soviet Union. In view of the foregoing, the Soviet government came to the conclusion that it is necessary to interrupt relations with this government, interrupt or sever the, uh, the, the translations uh, can be varied. But essentially what Stalin does is to say, Given the outrageous conduct of the London Poles, I am no longer having any diplomatic relations with them. They are not worthy to be called allies. And what that then enables him to do in this um, uh, display of fake outrage is to say in due course, within a few months, that he is now choosing a new government, choosing to recognize a new group of Poles who will be authentic, non-crypto-fascist leaders of Poland. These are the ones who are, of course, the communists who've been incubated in Moscow and are being prepared to go in on the back of the Red Army in 1944-45. So what we have here is somebody who has basically been exposed for really a quite brutal crime and whose response is to say, whatever it looks like, it's completely false. In fact, it is absolutely scandalous to say these sorts of things. 
and I'm going to deal with this in a way that is clear-cut and firmly organized. So basically he's saying in London and Washington to Churchill and Roosevelt, look, Henry, come on, what are you going to do about this? It's a real display of weakness. And he gets away with it. He gets away with it because in London, particularly and in Washington, there is real doubt about the Soviet sphere, real suspicions about what is being done. But, as Stalin calculates, they are not going to rock the boat of the alliance at a delicate time when the Russians are doing the Red Army round the world. And they are not going to challenge in public the Soviet account because all it will do is play into the hands of Germany. So basically, Churchill and Roosevelt bite their lips. Uh, as Churchill says to uh, the Polish leaders, you know, whatever we do, it will not bring the bodies back from the dead. Uh, the only person who, who uh, expresses real uh, indignation on the British side is the British ambassador to the Polish government in Washington, a man called Sir Owen O'Malley who goes into the material in detail, concludes that it was pretty certainly the Russians, and he says that the policy we're taking up um, uh, is one where we are rather like the little conifers in the forest in Smolensk that hide the shallow grave, uh, trying to put a, uh, an appearance of uh, decency over this shoddy affair. And it's interesting uh, if one thinks about sometimes how diplomacy works, that the British government, for a variety of reasons, never uh, admitted the truth about the uh, Hattian grave, not just in the war, but all through the Cold War. It was, there was always felt to be not an opportunity where you could say this publicly without really damaging Anglo-Russian relations, maybe setting back processes in detente at a particular point. So the British government kept quiet about this until they were themselves totally wrong-footed by Gorbachev, who announced the evidence in, in 1988, uh, which left the, the, the Foreign Office in particular with egg on its face. So this is a strange story, a disconcerting story. But what it reminds us of, underlying, is Stalin's capacity to turn what appears to be a setback into an advantage or to take the offensive even when you're backed into a corner. And that is something that Putin has understood very well and is a feature of, of, of current Russian diplomacy. So, um, a cavalier attitude, if you like, to the truth uh, when it serves him. also the power of silence. What's striking about this correspondence is that the three men, the three leaders, use it in different ways. And Churchill in particular is a man who believes in the power of words. This is after all a man who was a, a great uh, eloquent um, a speaker, a rhetorician, also a man of words on paper that he, he earned a living by writing, by the way, uh, 
bigger articles and so on. Uh, and of course, rates, six volumes, a memoir of Chris Sharp, still facing our understanding of the rigour of the war. So Churchill's response to problems is easy to adjust and often to write at great length, uh, probably too much. Indeed, some of his advice uh, commented particularly at conferences where Winston had maybe a little bit too much because that he's just he just couldn't shut him up. Stalin, it's very different. Stalin understands the power of silence. He understands the need to listen as much as to talk. So if those who met him, and we get we have some very good accounts from particularly British observers, uh, especially those who acted as, as interpreters at some of the meetings of the wartime conferences and Churchill's meetings with Stalin. Um, they describe quite vividly what you saw if you were taken into Stalin's office and how he conducted himself. He was uh, a little man. He was uh, slightly shorter than, than, than Churchill, even in his platform heels. Um, and uh, sorry, about five foot four, five foot five, I think. Um, not very prepossessing, pockmarked face, slightly mistaken arm. When he listened to you, uh, he would be uh, on a, he would have a, be a long table in his, his office with a, a beige cloth on it. Uh, say you were talking here. Stalin would not really look at you, he would doodle, doodle around. Uh, sometimes people actually managed to see what he was doodling, usually sort of animal heads, wolf heads, slightly crooked arms, sinister things. Um, and when he responded, it wasn't at great length, but it was always to the point, and it was terse, it was direct, sometimes quite blunt, uh, as, for example, in August 1942, where he accused Churchill to his face that uh, Churchill didn't, you know, the face of the British Army was a coward because they wouldn't have known the second chance that he was giving. Um, and he would not look at you. It would always be slightly to the side of you. Uh, so there was never an eye contact. So there's something slightly shifty about him, but there was a real sense of somebody who listened, did not waste words, but when he spoke, you felt that there was a conversation going on. You may not like what he said, but he, he, he was engaging with you. And that is why Churchill in particular believed that this was a man who could do business with, to borrow the Thatcherite phrase, which I suppose I agree with somewhat, um, even though there were vast differences of ideology between them. Churchill, after all, had been um, you know, a major opponent of the Bolshevik Revolution and wanted to intervene on the side of the whites. Um, so Stalin understands the value of listening and not always talking. And the same happens in the correspondence itself. Whereas Churchill tends to bombard him with messages and more explanations about why the British aren't mounting a second front or more interventions about what, um, uh, you know, what to do about Poland and so on, Stalin at one point has a, a gap of six weeks in the correspondence, despite messages from Churchill on both sides. Uh, frequent messages. This is in July and August 1943. A major part of the explanation is that he is deeply engaged in the Battle of Kursk, um, 
which is in many ways more important than Stalingrad, though we don't think about it in quite the same way, because this is the point at which our first Red Army resists the German summer offensive, whereas in 41 and 42, it had collapsed in the face of the German summer offensive. It re resists it at Kursk and then turns in onto the offensive itself and rolls into Ukraine, takes Kiev by the end of the year and so on. So it is a real turning point. And Stalin keeps his engagement open with it. But what is interesting is that at th that point, the British uh, and Americans, and, and Stalin knows about what he's thinking from his own agents in London, become increasingly worried that maybe Stalin, now on a roll victoriously, might take this as the moment to sign another deal with Hitler and say, okay, now we can uh, have another carve up, if you like, from a position of strength. Now I've turned it round. That there's no evidence that, that that was going to happen, but it's indicative of the kind of jitters in London when there was silence. And he keeps this up for six weeks. And even Roosevelt, who is much more, um, much less volatile in his attitude to Stalin, um, is worried as well. So knowing the power of silence. <coughs> And in a larger sense, what is striking about Stalin is that he doesn't meet his allies until he has strong cards in his hand. He resists the invitation to have a meeting in um, 1942, in early 1943. It's not until the Red Army is, as I say, rolling into Ukraine that he agrees to meet. Also, he agrees to meet on his own terms. He wants to meet they have to come to him, uh, and that's a particularly big journey for Roosevelt, who is, after all, uh, incapacitated, a wheelchair president, uh, as an exhausting journey, and his health never recovers from it. Um, so Stalin chooses, sorry, uh, what have I done here? Um, yeah, there's a picture of them at Tehran. Um, picture of a very impressive picture of allied unity uh, and in many ways a productive conflict but one in which Stalin has set the terms for that meeting uh, and he knows it just parenthetically with regards to Roosevelt that picture of him where he looks particularly commanding is actually totally staged because before it happens, some time before the photo opportunity happens, Roosevelt is wheeled in in his wheelchair. He cannot move, unable. He can't get up. Uh, he can't dress himself. Uh, uh, he can't, you know, get into bed. He, he has to somehow move, frankly. Um, so he's wheeled in, heaved onto a chair, and then his legs are arranged in that fashion. So it looks completely relaxed, but um, actually uh, a fake photo. Um, so Stalin understands the power of silence. He understands the need or the, the value in diplomacy of keeping your allies guessing, keeping other countries guessing, leaving them slightly off balance. Not totally off balance. It's important to be predictable up to a point. That creates another sense of predictability. But never allowing them to get uh, to the feeling of, of, of certainty about what you're up to. And that is uh, a technique in diplomacy that Russian leaders and certainly P Putin um, 
have used as well. Right, one further story, and then I'm going to uh, uh, pack up. Different kind of story. There's a picture of a British battleship. Uh, an R-class battleship uh, from uh, the First World War, eighth and a toy sovereign, pictured there in 1923. Okay, so look at it for a moment. Here's another picture of a battleship. It seems to have some similarity to that picture. But what is different, those of you who are familiar with Gunnar? The flag. The flag is the Russian flag. That is HMS Royal Sovereign, except it's now the Archangel, the uh, Soviet battleship Archangel. So how has this changed? I think it's not a very well-known story. I certainly didn't know it until I was working on this material, but it's actually quite revealing. Revealing about the importance of respect and status for Russians then and now. Background to this story is that in the autumn of 1943, when the uh, British and American forces and Canadian forces invade Italy, the uh, Mussolini's regime uh, crumbles, is overthrown. The Italians uh, look to uh, change sides um, and to develop a new relationship of what's called co-belligerency with the Allies. Uh, and to fight the Germans. The Germans, of course, move in uh, to as much of Italy as possible, and from then on, they're fighting a war against the Italians as well in a very brutal way. As part of the surrender terms of the Italians in 1943, the Italian fleet is surrendered to the Allies. Stalin insists that that fleet should be divided three ways, equally between the three allies. He's had some, as it were, um, uh, cues, if you like, from Churchill. He has made some comments to that effect in 1941 in very different circumstances. But Stalin doesn't forget these sorts of things. He, he, uh, he and his foreign minister Molotov pin, uh, pin them down. And he sticks to this demand that they want Italian ships for the Red Navy. And Stalin says it's to do with you know, damage or reparations, damage in the Black Sea, and so on. The real issue is equality of treatment. And he hammers on at this. In fact, when I started reading this correspondence, I thought, I get all these letters about the Italian fleet. Why is it so important? Why aren't they? And then we'll move on to the second part. And I realized actually it was important. Stalin, who usually was quite um, uh, nimble on his feet in diplomacy, didn't keep plugging something uh, 
excessively if it wasn't going anywhere. On this one, he gets really disappointed, and you have to ask why on earth I think he did the exercise. Okay, thank you. And um, the British and American military authorities are very clear that it will be disastrous to start sending Italian ships to uh, into the Black Sea to, to the Russians and so on. Um, it would completely upset the mood of Italian co-belligerency. It might bring down the, the current government in Italy and so on. So it's absolutely no go. Um, but Churchill is increasingly aware of Stalin's insistence. He's also aware that we are still we still have not opened in the autumn of 1944 a second front. And so he's looking for other ways to, to keep uh, the, the, the Soviets happy. So in the end, after several uh, months of uh, correspondence, Churchill and Roosevelt agree that since they can't provide Italian ships, they will provide some British and American ships until the Italian ships can be somehow recovered. And these will be sent to the US Navy. Since the US Navy will never give up any of its ships, uh, certainly not to the Russians, uh, in the end it actually becomes a British uh, obligation. And the Royal Sovereign, plus four submarines, was the first instalment of that on 30th of May. Uh, they were transferred to the um, uh, to Russian naval cruiser in, in Seattle Play. And the Archangel then uh, served for a number of years in the Cold War as a in the Russian fleet. Uh, it was a little bit, um, you know, past its sell-by date, but um, still, uh, you know, remembered favourably and fondly. There, in fact, you can actually buy a, um, uh, a, 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 a kit, a modelling kit of the Archangel in the back of the Vivacious. Um, before it was finally given back to the British, the Royal Navy, in 1959, when an Italian uh, battleship was sent <coughs> instead. Uh, by then, it had definitely passed its sell-by date and been sold for scrap. But this is a really, it's a kind of curious story, but it does underline how important being taken seriously as an equal was to Stalin's, as it is to Putin. Uh, to give you a sense of that, uh, there was an interesting um, uh, lecture or talk recently in Washington by the Finnish president, President Finland, who had, of course, hosted uh, uh, Putin in July of this year at the summit with, with Trump in Helsinki, and that he, he and Putin had talked quite a bit. And in the question and answer afterwards, the um, Finnish president was asked about Putin and what did he make of Putin and so on. And there was a long pause. Um, you could see the man cogs whirling and thinking, how do I handle this? And he said, well, I don't like to talk about anybody in a third person. Um, but then he, he was quite deft and interesting in his answer. He said, uh, I have met a number of people from my country, a number of Finns, who had dealings with Putin in the 1990s when Putin was working in the Leningrad government as uh, second in command to uh, Sobchak, the, the mayor of Leningrad, um, uh, St. Petersburg, as it then becomes. And 
Putin mentioned these people to me by name. And clearly valued the fact that they had taken him seriously when his country was in a total mess in the early 1990s. And said to me, President, the, um, for Putin, respect for him is respect for his country. Uh, and that, I think, is, is worth mem remembering. Those issues for a country that has persistently been on the margins of Europe and of the international community for reasons that are often self-inflicted but also are to do with exclusion, this is a very sensitive issue. So here we have three examples, I think, in different ways of lessons that we could, as it were, draw from the Stalin era about that determination to uh, never be backed into a corner, about not always talking, certainly not always tittering, but speaking, and um, also the importance of taking uh, one's country seriously, particularly a country that feels, with understandable reasons, that it played a decisive role in the Second World War that its final shower deserves as much, indeed much more, consideration. But I don't want to end on a, um, a, a, a negative or equivocal note. This is a message which gives you a different sense of Stalin and one that is also, I think, interesting in its own way. Stalin on D-Day, about D-Day, a message which he sent to Churchill on the 11th of June, 1944, so five days after the landing, by which time it was clear that they had established a foothold on the Normandy beaches. A pretty mild reception. Not clear-cut breakthrough by then, but certainly they, they were there and they were reinforcing. Stalin had been going on for three years about why there was no second coming. Why the British were going and the Americans were going into North Africa, were they cowards? Were they uh, you know, not loyal allies and so on? Um, crossing the channel was no great problem. It was like crossing a big river in Russia. You know, that was a new toy to avoid there, whatever it was. Get on with it. And Churchill is not quite sure how Stalin will reply, how he will respond to the news. And that's what he writes. I've also received your message of 10th of June. I thank you for the information. As is evident, the landing, conceived on a grandiose scale, has succeeded completely. My colleagues and I cannot but admit that the history of warfare it knows no other like undertaking from the point of view of its scale, its vast conception, and its masterly execution. As is well known, Napoleon in his time failed ignominiously in his plans for Japan. The hysterical Hitler, who boasted for two years that he would effect a forcing of the channel, was unable to make up his mind even to hint at attempting to carry out his threat. Only our allies, said Stalin, only our allies have succeeded in realizing with honor the grandiose plan of forcing the channel. 
history will record this series as an occlusion of the highest order. He also says much the same thing in, in Pravda in an interview a few days later. Now, even if you divide the hyperbole by two, this is clearly a tribute he doesn't have to make in that degree, uh, and with that uh, warmth as well. And one has a sense of somebody who's, who's feeling, yes, they have finally honored their commitments. They're doing their part of and it is, of course, part of the, an important part of the Tehran Conference of 1943 that I mentioned, that the two sides, if you like, the British, American, and um, the, the, the Soviets, agree that when overlords launch the landings in Normandy, the Russians will time their major summer offensive in Bielorussia to support that, so to hit the Germans from the other side, to hit the Wehrmacht, the German army from the other side. And that is indeed what is done. Although we are very familiar with 6th of June overlord, um, very little attention is paid to the, the Soviet summer offensive in uh, Bagration, which opened pretty much on the 22nd of June 44, so two, two years to the day after Barbarossa, the invasion, German invasion of Russia, and hit the German army from the other side. It's no accident that the most uh, dangerous shot against Hitler's life by the German army in the south of Mexico happens only a few weeks later. German army and German people can see the writing on the wall. So what, what happens is that we are now dealing in June 1944 with an alliance that is converging on the heart of Hitler's Russia. You can't see all the legend here, but basically the dark red is where, as it were, the uh, the allies, the big three allies, Britain, America, and Russia, are in the summer of 43, and then the, the uh, brownie and lighter brown areas are showing their advance into the heartland of Germany in 1944, 45. Uh, the blue areas are what's left of um, the Reich by the time of the surrender, plus occupied Norman, uh, Norway and, and, and Denmark. So for all its faults, all its problems, this was an alliance that actually did take seriously the main issue, the defeat of the Third Reich. By contrast, the Axis powers, who after all are indeed economically weaker than the, the big three allies, but nevertheless, they never cooperated to any degree in a common war aim, even though the German Navy, for example, would have been very keen uh, in 1942 to work with the Japanese Navy in a concerted way against Allies in China and the Russians. So the other tantalizing thing about this period is that here is a man, a leader who is a mass murderer, who is capable of uh, deception and uh, uh, um, all sorts of pinfalls, but also does manage to a significant degree to work together with um, uh, his allies. And historians uh, continue to debate whether there was any alternative proposal that followed or whether a different understanding of Stalin and of Russia might have led to a, a different outcome after 1945. 
So I'll leave it there. Thanks very much. We have a we have a few minutes for questions. If you want to ask a question, there's some, uh, I think a roving mic coming there um, on the, the right. So stick up your hand and um, uh, all being well, a mic will come to you. I can't see very well the hand, so you could. Why don't you do that? That might be a good idea. Yes, ah, well, oh, there's an audience there. Right, okay. Um, yes, so ha hands up if you want to ask a, a question. I'm afraid there's a gentleman here who's going to have to run around or something. Oh, you've got one down here. Yes, gentleman in the blue here. Blue something. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much. How was Stalin able to make such a major error the, before the uh, invasion of Germany? And did he acknowledge that he'd made that error? In you mean before the German invasion in yes. June 41? Um, I mean, I've talked a little bit about how, um, you know, the, the Allies were kind of um, taken in to some degree by Stalin. Stalin had his own um, illusions and indeed a capacity for self-deception, which was even greater than, than his allies. Um, the Nazi-Soviet pact looked at the time a pretty shrewd move because, one, it enabled Stalin to get back old Tsarist territory because he saw it in, in Ukraine, Poland, and uh, uh, the Baltic states. And also, hopefully, it would turn the Germans west against Britain and France, uh, which he then anticipated would be a long fight, just as it had been in 1914-18. So up to a point, it was a reasonable gamble. What he did not expect, and did nobody expect, was that the French army collapsed in four or five weeks, which then left Hitler in command of continental Europe and in a position to go east much earlier than he'd intended. Stalin had no doubt that eventually there would be a conflict between uh, the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany. What he was trying to do was defer it until, uh, you know, to give him greater time to rearm himself. When, how did he think a war would eventually come? His model for that was essentially what had happened over Czechoslovakia and Poland in 1938-39. In other words, that Hitler would um, create a, a kind of false sense of crisis. He would ratchet up the tension. He would make impossible demands. He would free Rand and so on, lower the tension a little bit, then do it all over again, and eventually attack. So, you know, marching into, he had an agreement over Czechoslovakia in September 38, eventually he marches in in March 39. Poland, same sort of thing, a kind of contrived war scare which justifies German invasion. In other words, Stalin thinks, yes, after 19, June 1940, yes, there's going to be a German attack eventually, but we will have plenty of notice of it. There will be this sort of fake crisis and so on. What he does not expect is that literally, you know, after four o'clock on the morning the 22nd of June, he gets a phone call from Marshal Kutuzov, who says, you know, we have uh, you know, several million German troops invading your, your country. And according to Zhukov's memoirs, which he rewrote several times during the course of Stalin and Soviet years, but anyway, broadly speaking, you know, there's just a long silence on the phone and heavy breathing. Stalin really realizes that he's made a terrible mistake. What he seems to have done was to want no to do nothing in the way of even reconnaissance or 
flight or whatever that might give Hitler an excuse to attack. So um, that's why he prevents his, uh, his, his marshals, his leaders, military leaders, from doing anything that might in any way give, give Hitler that excuse. So basically, this is a huge story of self-deception. We don't quite know what happens at the end of June 1941, but certainly, according to Chris Sharp, I think, Nick Iam, various people in the Politburo, Stalin does have a kind of nervous collapse. But the really ironic and actually deeply sad thing is that and he retreats with Dutch, and then um, a delegation comes out from the inner circle to him. And when they walk into the room, the way Stalin's looking is like they're coming to say, okay, that's it, you have to be put to death. And all they can do is say, uh, you know, will you take on uh, full powers of military command as well as political leadership? You know, so these are guys who are totally dependent on Stalin, even when he has made the most enormous promises. So it's a, it's a, a, a dreadfully sad story because, of course, if uh, the, the, the Red Army had been prepared or had been allowed to be prepared, uh, you could probably say hundreds of thousands of Russian lives would, would not have been lost. A third of the Red Air Force had just destroyed on the track. They're just sitting on their, um, on their you know, in their hangars. Maybe we've got more time for another question. Uh, yes, lady over there. You spoke of the fact that you had parallels between Hitler and Stalin in terms of the positive characteristics that Hitler took from Stalin as opposed to Stalin. Would you argue that um, for the top here in Stalin, you know, that you've got parallels between Stalin and previous Russian national leaders who are having that kind of disillusionment? Yes, yeah. the, the parallels between Stalin and Stalin's character. Yeah. Would you sort of parallels at that time of maybe Putin or Churchill, Stalin's character, or how would you? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that is striking about once the war breaks out is that, well, not immediately, but certainly by 1942, as the crisis deepens, uh, they drop a lot of the rhetoric about revolutionary ideology, and they reach back to the iconic figures of Russian history and Russian military history. Um, so it's you know, the invocations of the uh, struggle against Napoleon, the War of 1812, um, uh, leaders like Kutuzov, Suvorov, and so on. And it's actually also very striking, and you get this from British visitors to see this particularly, because they go to Stalin's office, you know, perhaps once a year or something like that. By uh, early 43, the pictures on the wall behind this little man sitting there at his desk have changed. So it's not, no longer it's the Engels, Marx, and, and so on, those sorts of figures from uh, the, uh, and Lenin, of course, um, from Soviet period, but actually these uh, major military figures who are now, you know, invoked and, and celebrated as as heroes, um, and yes, Ivan, going back to Ivan the Terrible, anything that's you know about resisting the Teutons and all of that, um, and of course by uh, early 42, Stalin has changed from 
the normal his 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 normal dress in the, in the partiest attire, which was um, the British didn't quite understand it. They thought he looked like a rather sort of a grubby Edinburgh peasant, you know, a sort of thick felt jacket and, and trousers and things like this. And he's wearing military uniform. So once the Red Army is actually winning after Stalingrad, Stalin is very happy to take on, um, uh, cloak himself in the mantle of this victorious army as the supreme commander. So yes, they are plugging back into a different kind of Russian history um, with the ideologies cloaked out. But of course, just one final thing, what happens at the end of the war after the Red Army has been victorious, after it has seen Central uh, Europe and Germany even in ruins and has realized the difference in living standards between what they have been through and what is the characteristics of, of capitalist society. Stalin is very keen to put the lid back on the country ideologically. So all that stuff about the Russian past, that sort of ebbs away, and contacts with the West are uh, increasingly um, uh, clamped down on and regarded as suspect as evidence of cosmopolitanism.